Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And today we're uh, going to do something seasonal. We're talking about the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol, or Scrooge as it was originally called in the UK, uh, with Alistair Sim. Directed by Brian Desmond Hurst. Dude, that, that name sounds almost like somebody who would write erotica. Okay. Yeah. Um, we should note that uh, this is kind of a special episode we're shoving in between other stuff we were doing. We just figured it's Christmas time. So yeah. why not? So we will be getting, if people are wondering, we will be getting to near dark and to high noon. High noon. Uh, we just, uh, all this seasonal stuff keeps getting in the way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been kind of a rough year for me. Well, rough five months. We'll put it that way, given that I've been on the job market. Yay. Yeah, oh, you, David knows all about that because somehow he got a job. Yeah, it took a while. So yeah, my uh, my sympathies and my fingers are crossed for you. <laughs> we shall see. So on the subject of this movie, uh, David suggested it. Um, I said we might want to do you know something seasonal, and he said, "Well, what about the 1951 Christmas Carol slash Scrooge starring Alastair Sim?" And he also suggested that I watch the uh, cartoon version that came in 1964. What year did that come out? Um, I can't remember. Or is it 71? I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, it was the one directed by uh, Chuck Jones. and Because there, there were a couple of uh, animated versions. Um, but the one you wanted in, me to watch uh, had Alistair Sim reprising doing his the, role in the form of the that's voice. That's right. Which That's right. I did yeah. find very interesting. I watched the cartoon first and went back and watched Scrooge slash Christmas Carol. And I will admit that I, I like certain flourishes that are in the cartoon, but I strongly prefer the 1951 film. In fact, I understand why you picked this film because my favorite Christmas Carol movie was actually Muppets. <laughs> oh, this is Michael Caine, yeah, right? Michael Caine. Scrooge. Uh, which I always enjoyed uh, because it's Muppets and because I mm-hmm. watched it as a child. Uh, but this one is now my favorite because it is really, really good. And I also, uh, I-, I have to say, one of the things I did want to mention and that we should talk about is this film, more so than any other Christmas Carol I have seen, feels very much like a horror movie. Yes, especially in the uh, the first act. Yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the, and and uh, why I find the uh, uh, the the colorized version of it so horrible because it, it the black and white cinematography uh, is so atmospheric and the uh, the gloom through which uh, Scrooge moves in uh, the the opening scenes is so wonderful. I mean, it does it feels legitimately spooky when Marley's about to show up. It is. It in and I mean Alistair Sim gives a really I think a remarkable performance here because he I mean you could see the terror on his face when Marley yes. shows up or when he's experiencing all these moments and in fact the things that in so many other Christmas carol movies come off as being they're they're quote unquote horrific but they're not really horrific they're just kind of like oh that's really sad a lot of the things we see from Scrooge's past in this movie uh based on Alistair Sim's performance, is horrific. They're horrifying things. Just seeing the kind of man he has become, the hardships he's experienced, how he's become this cold, dark person, seeing what's going to happen to him and his legacy when he dies. All of that, I think, gets increasingly more horrifying in a kind of existential way. 
Um, and it's very interesting that Sims, the way he acts, if you pay attention to him, he begins, you know, this crusty old, he never smiles. He's just, he's kind of gross looking. His hair's just, he's balding on the top. His hair's sticking out a bit. He looks horrifying. And then he's immediately terrified. He's utterly terrified, but he's resistant to the, the call for change. And he becomes increasingly less resistant as each of the, the spirits shows. And you can see that in his, in his, his personality, right? He's becoming less sort of proud and arrogant and mean and becoming sort of a man being broken, right? And torn to little pieces up until he wakes up and he has what amounts to what seems like, and justifiably so, a fit of utter madness where he's dancing around and grabbing his housekeeper and, and, you know, giggling and laughing uncontrollably and just he he looks like a man who snapped like he's been angry so long that he's finally just yeah we can understand why mrs dilber is frightened of him uh, yeah. when he's uh, that uh, actually in that scene um i don't know if uh, you noticed this uh but uh you can it, when he's um amusing himself in front of the mirror you can see the film crew in the back uh, reflected uh by, by the mirror oh i didn't notice that uh it, it, I hadn't, it was like umpteen times before, and I think I had to have that drawn to my attention, so I'll, I'll just, I'll just mention that. But yeah, I would agree completely with what you were saying about his performance, and I think this is one of the, uh, one of the things that makes this one so strong, is that Alistair Sim is completely believable as both the pre- and post-conversion Scrooge. Yes. Right? He, he, he's, he's absolutely convincing as a total bastard in the, uh, uh, the opening bit. But at the end, he does look like a, he's, that face which was so, mean Dower. in the first act is so kind at the conclusion yes right and it's hard to believe that it's the same man and and this is i think one of the, the issues that some of the other films have some difficulty with i mean um and they, some, a lot of them have their strengths the the george c scott version for example uh, i think has one of the most convincingly frail tiny tims I and mean, the kid in that movie looks like yeah he's toast he's he's not going to make it to next christmas uh but um and Scott is absolutely convincing as the pre-conversion Scrooge, but it's a little bit harder to buy him um, as Happy Scrooge. Well, remember, uh, there is a Henry just, Winkler version. <laughs> there is, which is actually very good. Um, uh, but um, and, and the thing is, I mean, the problem I mean, Scott is a terrific actor, but the thing is, when he smiles, it's like an Easter Island head smiled at you, right? Oh it's just—it's hard to get gaiety, right, with with George <laughs> C. Scott. And I'm, I'm reminded of what Ruben Mamoulian said uh, when, when he was casting the 1931 Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and originally Irving Pitchell was uh, uh, posed as 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 the star, and he said, "I needed someone." Uh, Mamoulian said, "I needed somebody who could play Jekyll, but Pitchell could only play Hyde." <laughs> um, and uh, with uh, the and the Henry Winkler one, I think he does a good job. I think he actually um, he's really good in that. Uh, and it's actually I, I have a great deal of fondness for that film, which interestingly, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll get to that in, in a bit. The, the, the way it, it actually adapts the 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 1951 film more than it does the book. Uh, but the the issue with some of the other um, ones, and I think you you described this well, is is we see the gradual change of Scrooge in um, 
in this one. Even though he says, I'm too old, I cannot change, but we've been seeing that he has been from the start. And that's very true to, uh, uh, Dickens, uh, novel. Uh, some of the other films give us basically him being grumpy, 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 and then Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come shows up and, oh my god, I'm gonna die, now I'm happy. Uh, and the change is too sudden. Uh, it, uh, it, it it's not convincing, as I, I think it is here. So one of the things that you had mentioned to me, and I think it's sort of coming up or is implied by what you said before, is that uh, it's something I did not know, which is that this film, I mean, it obviously departs from the book, uh, but it also becomes the film that other films copy from. And you said this when you talked about the other the, the other film, uh, that that this film sets up so much of what we consider to be the Christmas Carol story. Uh, which I found really fascinating because I did not know that. So when I went into watching this, I was looking and realizing like, oh, that looks familiar. I've seen that before and other things, not realizing that, well, that this is the film that kind of establishes a lot of this and trying to think about what is it that is in this that's different from the book that is translated across and how other films approach it. And so one of the things that, you know, I mentioned before, right, that the Muppet Carol is technically my Christmas Carol because that's the one I grew up on. Um, but there's something, I think, that you lose in that version because it's a Muppet movie, right? This movie is so dark. Uh, it's foreboding. It's, it's atmospheric. It, it's, I mean, really, when you were saying earlier, right, don't watch it in color. You shouldn't watch it in color. Watch it in black and white because it's, it's so much more gloomy and, and the emotion is there, I think, even in just what we're seeing, not necessarily what's being acted, although that's there too. But when you watch something like The Muppet Carol, right, all of those dark things, they, they don't build up. They get, they, we see like, you know, some sort of sad thing, like Michael Caine, you know, basically gets broken up with, with his lady. But then, of course, we follow that up with like Kermit the Frog and Fozzie Bear singing a song or something, right? Uh, characters supposedly die in the movie, but they, that's really subdued. Here, like, death is, is omnipresent. It's, it's this thing that's constantly there. Marley dead. Right. Uh, and, and we get the sense of how dead it is because we see his death and it's gruesome and horrifying. Um, that's something that gets missing, I think, from, from something like the Muppet movie because it's trying to be cute and lighthearted and children's movie. This one, I mean, I wouldn't show this to kids because <laughs> it's very dark and, and I yeah. love it for its darkness. I really do. I mean, I did see it as a kid and the, the, the one that I first saw was the 1971 animated for, version, but I was still, uh, I think still probably about five years old or so when I saw this for the first time. And it, uh, yeah, it's spooky and, and it, well, the darkness is certainly very, that's one of the aspects in which it is very true to Dickens. I mean, Dickens's, uh, Christmas books are dark. Uh, the... His books in general the, are pretty dark. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they are. Uh, and, uh, for all that they, uh, uh, you know, sort of move towards uh, the, the Christmas ones. You know, we get our happy endings. There's no denying the, uh, uh, like the, the, they're very aware of the poverty and the, uh, the, the social injustices of, uh, of, of the times. And, um, the, uh, and, and the film certainly captures that. And, uh, the, you know, we're, we are aware of the poverty, uh, that is everywhere, uh, in, in London, uh, there. It's, it's not, it's not glossed over. It is, 
central to what ha- why Scrooge becomes who he is and uh, and and wh- what's necessary for him to become to try to change afterwards. Uh, and uh, I mean the the the, the other ones like I remember the, the chimes is a, is a grueling story to to get through. Um, uh, it's um. Uh, which, which is, it's kind of like, uh, there's a bit of an it's a wonderful life aspect to that one, uh, though, though darker yet. Uh, so the, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the film, I mean, it, it's a great Christmas ghost story, right? Uh, as, as the, uh, as, as the, the, the novel is. The, the, and that is something of a tradition, right? The, uh, the, the ghost story, the, the horror story at Christmas. Uh, for all that, uh, I remember sort of people uh, be, you know, raising their eyebrows when Hellbound Hellraiser 2 was released on Christmas Day. Well, guess what? Frankenstein in 1931 got its preview on Christmas. Uh, so, and, and the, the Victorian tradition is filled with, uh, uh, ghost stories of, of this kind. So, um, yeah, we even tackled that myself. So there's there's a long tradition that that uh, well that the Dickens was was part of of creating, and this uh, this film I think is yeah it captures that it has that darkness. It it goes into the the sentimentality big time that's present in Dickens too. There's no, there's there's no getting away from that. It, it's it's melodramatic in every sense, uh, and it it doesn't hold back and and. There, there are certainly moments, therefore, that won't necessarily work for everyone. It can get sappy, uh, sure. But that's, but that also is true to the book. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, in you know, you're talking, and I was thinking about the kind of overlying theme of the narrative, um, or maybe not the overlying, but certainly one of the major themes, uh, which is uh, essentially it's sort of anti-capitalist. <laughs> this. This, I mean, obviously, it's coming from a period when when capitalism was kind of in its early phases, but we're talking now post-war, uh, post-war England, uh, which is rebuilding uh, after the war. And and I find it interesting that that the that the the themes of this work are become much more poignant. I I feel as we get into periods of just just obsessive wealth generation. Um, I mean, if you if you imagined remaking this film today you know just take new actors but do the same tone and the feeling from start to finish you just basically do a shot by shot retake that film would fall into this category that a certain segment of our community david would refer to as message fiction because it is a message this whole time we we are being told that you know wealth is wonderful it's great if you can produce wealth but if what you what what you do with that wealth really matters and even even Marley, his character, the first time we see him, he's carrying these, I believe they're books. Isn't he carrying his books? The ledgers. The ledgers, right? It, he, and he yeah. he basically says these are these are the 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 um the punishments, right? That I'm being forced to to yeah. take because of the life I've led, and I'm here to try to save you. You know, almost like you know, not really like a Jesus figure, but sort of, kind of, right? He's kind of like an angel, just an angel from hell. <laughs> um, and and. And so the, it's very clear from the start to finish of this work that, you know, wealth is, is, is not something that should be prized, right? It's these other, other aspects of society that are prized, right? Um, Bob Cratchit, him, him and his family, they're poor, but look at what they take joy in. They, there's that moment, right, where he brings out the, 
the was it like a punch gin or or something i can't remember what kind of they say gin some kind of gin i don't know if it's got actual gin it's in gin. It, but whatever yes yeah, it's, it's gin right yeah. alcoholic children that's always useful um <laughs> he's giving it to all his family right and they're looking at it and going well we have enough where we can have like a pre-dinner uh drink and an after dinner toast right and and they're happy about that they're really excited that they get that even though they don't have much wealth and it's something that Scrooge, he takes no actual pleasure in anything that he produces, right? He's producing wealth, endlessly producing wealth, pinching pennies at every inch he can to keep producing wealth. He lives in this immense house. He has all the furnishings he could want. He could eat anything he wants. I mean, there's even that, that scene, right, where he's in the, the – uh, there's a restaurant, right? We see it yeah. just briefly where he's eating, and he says, you know, more bread. And the waiter says, well, it will cost more. And he's like, no more bread because he doesn't want to pay for more just to satiate himself, right? Even though he could. He could. He could take a little pleasure, but he doesn't. He never does until he gets to the end and he realizes the life he's missing, the all of the joy, the little joys, right? It's not just like having money, right? He's missing out on going to his nephew's dinner and dancing. He He dances at the end of this movie and he's grinning the whole time. And it's like those small pleasures in life, right, that, that really make life worth it. It's not enough just to have the money, to have the wealth, to have power or whatever. It's all of that other stuff that makes life worthwhile. And I find that, that so fascinating for this work because it's a classic, right, not just specifically this film, but, you know, the idea of the film and it's all of its re- reproductions, right? It's constantly done. I think there's probably a new version of The Christmas Carol every year. Some networks do in a version, right? It's timeless in a sense it keeps repeating and we can keep seeing that that idea repeated and yet we very clearly are, are living in a, in a society now or at least in a community where this work would have to be rejected because it does have a very clear message well i think well i mean i i don't well i see what you mean i mean certainly it yes the, the message is uh is, is clear in every version it's there uh i mean in, right in the preface uh charles dickens is declaring this you know, i have a message here right i have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves with each other with the season or with me uh it is very pointed in that way and i think he, uh you can see sort of you know, in, in modern uh, versions of it, adapting that um, that idea, the, uh, the American Christmas Carol uh, sets its scene in the 1930s, so you get a nice um, a nice transposition uh, from mid 19th century London to uh, uh, 30s uh, America, and and of course the Bill Murray version. Um, in a, in a very uh, 80s context, so it is uh, the the point that it's making is endlessly transferable because the uh, the issues uh, don't change. In fact, some of the uh, the, the the rhetoric of uh, the, the scene, um, uh, the you know, uh, poverty being cast as a form of immorality, uh, is something that Dickens addresses uh, certainly in uh, in the Chimes, uh, but is uh, tangentially touched on in, uh, in, in in a Christmas Carol as well, uh, and I think the uh, that 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 anxiety of the of, of the world, I think one of the bits that that captures that very nicely and and, and is uh, preserved in the film, or or words more or less to that effect, is in the final is in the, the scene of the Ghost of Christmas Past uh, when. Um, uh, Scrooge and uh, uh, Alice in the movie, Belle in the book, they're, they're breaking up. 
and uh, and she says another idol has displaced me. Right, that now he's always concerned about with his his money, uh, and to which he responds, "This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth." Uh, but uh, so he's he's chosen his, his what what he sees as the lesser of two evils at that particular point. Yeah, and that that particular scene, uh, you know. There are aspects of that scene I I really appreciate. I mean, the, I I like the the lines that are spoken there. Um, I think the performance, uh, mostly from the woman who plays Alice, I I don't think she gets enough space to really give this sense of the despair that she's feeling. Um, because at that point we we know what's I mean, Scrooge is lost, right? He's lost his sister. Um, in in the book, right? He it's not clear how she dies, but in the film. She dies giving birth to his nephew, which I think is actually a much more effective tool to explain why he has so much resentment for his nephew, because he's also, right, his mother died giving birth to him, so it kind of gives this cycle. But the scene, I think, is one where uh, we don't expect Scrooge to feel, because the only thing we see from him at that point is anger, and uh, there's another emotion, I'm tr- I can't think of the word for it, but there's there's sort of... You know the the kind of thing we expect from people when they've they've experienced hardship and they don't deal with it well and they they turn against the world, right? Um, yeah. Well, you you fear the world too much is what Bell says to him in response to to that, and then and, and we, right. you see, I think you're seeing that in what you're describing. Yeah, and it is it is a really great sequence, and and the idea being presented there is one that that uh, you know the, not just the idols, but the way that it's expressed. Right, that uh, she looks at him, and he's basically saying the exact opposite of what we had seen maybe ten, fifteen minutes before. Right, where he's loving on her at Fozzywig's party, where like he spent Fizzywig, sorry, Fizzywig, uh, sorry, I'm thinking <laughs> Muppets, Fozzywig. <laughs> <The Muppets, yeah. laughs> um, right, but but has has spent like a couple pounds. I'm assuming that's. A decent amount of money. I'm not sure exactly how much that is at the time of the Christmas Carol, but a couple pounds sounds like quite a bit of dough, right? To throw this. Party, well, the, the, actually, the, the point is that it, it it wasn't an expensive party. Is that is that it? it? Didn't okay, cost a lot. Yeah, not 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 that. Uh, the I mean, yeah, that would have been. Um, I mean, what uh, when when at the end of the film when he gives Mrs. Dillbert a, uh, a guinea, uh, like that was. Yeah. He gives uh, her ten shillings, was, right? No, no, he raises her, and then he gives her, um, the, then he gives her the present. Um, well, he gives her the present, then gives her a raise of ten shillings a week. But he yeah, gives her, so, I guess, which, a guinea then. Yeah, okay. which which was uh, that, that was like he, you know, uh, that was a lot of money. But the uh, the point that the um, uh, with with the Fezziwig's ball is that it it didn't cost a lot. Okay, right? yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, yeah. It was, um, it was what he did, right? The uh, the the spirit with which that was done. That um, made a huge difference, right? Because the this, this, the ghost of Christmas past is well, what what's the big deal? How much did this cost him? Just a few pounds of your mortal money, right? In his response, Scrooge's response is well, like, but that's not the point, right? The point was that he yeah. could bring so much joy, and I think that's the first moment when Scrooge actually recognizes how he has become unlike the person he actually idolizes in a way, right? He looks up to Fizzywig. Um, and that's the first moment when we see that that veneer of hardness kind of fall away, and then he puts it back up. It's like it's like shields up, right? It's he's very much, and that scene gets mimicked, right? Because we see him, right? He looks over and he sees him loving on his his future fiance, right? 
and explaining to her, right, that, like, she's concerned that her, her lack of wealth is going to turn him away, right, because she's a poor woman, she doesn't have a lot of money, and she has no dowry or anything like that to give him, and he's like, I don't care, because I love you because you're poor, because you don't want for anything, right, we can just share in our love together, right, in that moment, he's very much like Bob Cratchit, right, that that's the moment, but then that's mirrored again later, right, where where I think what is the heartbreak for her is is not that he's actually changed idols. It's that uh, what that means is that on some level he won't admit he now holds contempt for her because she is not wealthy, because she does not share her desire for wealth, because she sees the world differently. And when we later see her right working in, I'm assuming in the basement of a church helping the sick and infirm and the, the homeless, right? That's a much later moment when we start to see the older screws starting to break down, but you start to see that sense of, this is the woman she is. She is the giving person because she has nothing, and she never wants for any of that, whereas Scrooge loses sight of what it is to give and, and becomes this hard person who only wants to take. And it's in these past sections that uh, we see the, the the greatest departures from the novel. Uh, the 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 bits from the, uh, the 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 present and the future are very very faithful. Uh, and uh, and we, though we do have lots of the moments that here it's, it's where the film um, I guess stretches its um, its wings creatively in that it fi- it it decides to flesh out Scrooge's background a lot more. Uh, so and for instance the uh, in the, the scene you just quoted uh, the equivalent moment in the book is very different. Instead of finding her uh, tending to the poor there in the book he sees her with her family. Uh, he sees her with her husband and her children and, uh, and that's his last moment in the past and it, and what's driven home to him is, you know, that this family could have been his, um, if, uh, if he hadn't, uh, made, made that terrible mistake. But the other thing, the, uh, the, the now, and, and that is a, an interesting point you, you raised about the, the cycle that's created with him having, uh, resenting his nephew for his sister's death and childbirth as his father resented him for uh, his mother's death and childbirth. Uh, that's an interesting addition that the film makes. It does create a bit of a continuity problem because his sister is his little sister. So how his mother gave birth, died giving birth to him, and still produce a little sister is left unexplained. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, though admittedly, I don't know if the film ever specifically identified. It does call her little fan, though. Yeah, but uh, I guess I guess you're right that maybe the film does not explicitly uh, like it, it. Could be like one of those things, right? Like the the parsec thing, right? You know, I did the Tesla <laughs> run and there however many parsecs, right? Uh, and yeah. it's like, well, we're we're explaining it in in not in terms of time or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, the, the film, though, other than that line of dialogue, doesn't go right out and say that she is younger because in the book, the uh, his sister is clearly his little sister. Right. She's just a little child right. who comes to uh, to greet him, whereas here she's an adult. So, so maybe what they're uh, playing at is sort of that thing where, like, she, the a kind of paternalism, a brotherly paternalism, like he's, she's my sister, she may not be my actual little sister, but because she's right. my sister, I'm yeah. still 
right? Maybe that's what they're going for. I mean, it seems like it's a small point, but it certainly could be a, re- a it could be a continuity error. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at any rate, it's certainly a moment where the you can see the uh, the, the the filmmakers are sort of looking at sort of, uh, sort of moments in the in the book and saying we can fl- we we can flesh this out a bit. Why might his father have hated him? Why doesn't he like his nephew? And and these are the answers they came up with. And I think one of the expansions that does work really well is when he where we get to see him meet Marley played by future uh, John Steed, Patrick McNee. Um, and, and then we see them eventually, you know, the, 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 creature, the creation of the character of Mr. Jorkins, who feels like he comes out of a Dickens novel. He feels like he's from the book, but he's not. Uh, and the, we see the, the takeover of Fezziwick's, uh, business, and then the, uh, and then when Scrooge and Marley take over after Jorkin, uh, embezzles. And that whole scene, is entirely fabricated for the film, but my goodness, does the dialogue sound like it came out of the book? Uh, it uh, they, they really captured the, uh, the the feel and the and the, and the rhythms of Dickens' language uh, in in that scene. I think it works really really well. And that whole business with the this is one of the things that I think some of the other films continue to do is um, focus primarily on the past. Right, that takes up the biggest section of the film. Or like of the three visitations, that's the longest. Yeah. In the book, they're all about the same. Oh, interesting. Uh, but we we are given more, and so the the Henry Winkler version uh, has the whole again that idea of the you know taking over the the Fezziwig equivalents uh, business, uh, and uh, so that again the, 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 we're as if those moments in the film became canon for the. Uh, uh, for the later ones that is that is really really interesting i mean i think a lot of the changes in really do improve this particular film i mean uh, it's been a long time since i've read christmas carol uh and i'm I'm sure as a book it's fine it works just fine but i do think to enhance the tension and the the sort of drama of this work some of these changes really offer a lot of symbolic power that maybe are are not as present uh, if you just did a totally faithful adaptation, um, well, it, again, it, it depends on. Uh, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say they improve on the book, but they for the the, the medium in which they're appearing, I think they they, they certainly fit. They they belong there. Sure. Uh, and uh, I think one of the other nice touches is the uh, the death of Marley. Uh, though there is, I mean, it's possible to read the, uh, some black humor into that situation. He's trying to tell uh, Scrooge, save yourself, and Scrooge just doesn't get it, and then Marley just, it looks like he just gets fed up and dies, like, oh, okay, forget it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, however, uh, it does create this um, this thing. When, when we see, when Scrooge sees the ghosts that Marley is part of, right, all the ones who um, uh, who have lost, the, who now want to interfere for good in human existence, but cannot, I've lost the power forever, as, as Dickens says, and I think a, a moment that is even more nightmarish in the um, in the in the animated version, uh, as is the I think the appearance of ignorance and want. But um, but we see Marley on his deathbed trying to do the right thing, which then gives us perhaps a reason why he, of all those ghosts, is able to interfere for good. Right. It is uh, because it is through his intervention that Scrooge is being visited by these three spirits. Right. So there. So Marley is. is there is this one thing that he's able to do, and perhaps because we see him on his deathbed trying to save his friend, uh, doing that one last good thing 
just uh, in, in the last seconds of his life. Yeah, poor Marley. <laughs> I mean, he was a turd, so you got to give him that. I mean, I, we don't get a lot of Marley, but because our focus obviously is on Scrooge, uh, but yeah. we do get that very clear sense that Marley is no less morally questionable than Scrooge. Um, yeah, it's just that happens that Scrooge is saying the things that I think Marley doesn't say because there's that great scene, right? You've already talked about it that where they're trying to take over that business because of the embezzlement, and and uh, Scrooge looks over at Marley for approval to. He basically says, right, like, shall I be the one? Shall I be? Shall I be spokesman? Right. Yeah, and and Marley just gently nods. It's right? just that yeah. gentle, almost sinister nod. And then, of course, what he proposes is. Uh, we'll, we'll take up your debts and so you all don't go bankrupt. Uh, but you have to give us 51% of the company. Uh, and I, I love that because it's, it seems like such a small thing, but you realize, no, this is a company takeover is what's happening over what will eventually be the, the bankruptcy of all these people. It's very sinister and it's very, uh, subtle, that scene. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the the actor playing the older Marley, uh, uh, he doesn't get have a lot to do, uh, but um, uh, so Michael uh, Hordern, uh, but he who also reprised his role in the cartoon, right. uh, but he he does a lot with with those with those bits. Yeah, I mean overall, I just feel like this is this is a really exceptional film. I mean, it's certainly not perfect, but it's it is it, it has a oh go ahead. So, well, it's got an amazing cast. Uh, the uh, apart from the ones we've already mentioned, but uh, I mean, certainly for the, at least uh, for the the horror fans out there, you've got Ernest Desinger, uh who's the Undertaker in here, Mr. Stretch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and he's uh, uh, Doctor Pretorius in the Bride of Frankenstein. So oh. uh, there's a familiar face there, and um, and Bob Cratchit, uh, Murphy Jones. Who's, uh, yeah, and the thing is, um, I mean, so you, I mean, I saw this film, you know, like every year, right? Uh, from, uh, the age of five or six, I forget how old I was when I first saw it, uh, onwards. So then, and I never saw Mervyn Johns in anything else except this until Dead of Night, uh, from 1945, which is, uh, still perhaps the best anthology, uh, horror film. And, uh, and so here's, uh, Bob Cratchit as the, you know, in the, he's in the framing narrative. So here's Mervyn Johns talking to a psychiatrist about this terrible dream he's having. Uh, and at the climax, the, uh, the absolutely surreally nightmare climax of, uh, of Dead of Night, he winds up strangling the psychiatrist with his tie. And it's like, Bob Cratchit, what are you doing? Apologies for spoilers. That is kind of horrifying, actually, given that uh, Bob Cratchit in this movie is kind of adorbs. <laughs> he's really adorable. Yeah, he's man. really nice. Yes, he is. I mean, it's hard to imagine. But, like, sometimes that happens, right, where you get an actor who, you know, like, like you think of, like, child actors who end up on Law & Order SVU being, like, a horrible child rapist slash murderer, and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, everything I know about you is terrible. Um, or like, uh, oh, great example of this. Law and Order SVU, there's an episode with John Stamos. Have you ever seen this episode? Okay, so the basic premise is John Stamos is like this, this serial, uh, impregnator, I guess. I don't know what the official 
name is, but he's like a super narcissist. He thinks himself to be like his his sperm basically is like super sperm and that women should feel glad that he accidentally impregnated all of them. And I put little quotey things around the accidents because they're actually intentional impregnations. He's just, he's not telling, like he's, he's claiming condoms break, right? And when he's actually been poking holes, things like that. Um, and he's kind of this abusive person. I think he murders someone in the episode. Um, he's sort of an emotional manipulator. Uh, and it's really hard to think of John Stamos, who the last time I saw him was on Full House, <laughs> it's being this very creepy, manipulating, scary figure. Uh, but yet, occasionally that happens, and he does pull it off. And also, occasionally that happens where someone actually pulls off being a creeper. Um, but yeah, that's just well. I, I think perhaps one of the most uh, famous examples of cross casting is Once Upon a Time in the West where the good guy is Charles Bronson and the uh, terrifying psychopath is Henry Fonda. Yeah, that, that works. So weird. Of course, we wandered uh, far away from uh, Christmas Carol. I think I, what, what I will say uh, briefly about the, um, uh, the, the cartoon is that though uh, I mean, it has there, – there's um, – well, the, the, the half hour perhaps uh, – forces a kind of a, a um, compression on certain things. Um, it's in many ways extraordinarily faithful to the book. And uh, on the one hand, it, I mean, the, it's, it's visions of ignorance and want are just horrifying in, uh, yeah. in, in, in there. Uh, they're really, really uh, dark. And the ghost of Christmas past that we get in that cartoon is the only time to my knowledge that we have seen a faithful rendering of how Dickens describes the ghost in the book. The uh, sort of childlike figure that seems like multiples, sort of echoes of itself? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, the, uh, if I just, um, the, the way he describes it, um, is a, it was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium. And uh, going further on, uh, for as its belt sparkled and glittered now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body. Uh, so they really sort of captured that, which granted difficult to do, uh, and uh, the 1951 film, I think, wisely uses fairly simple special effects. Yeah. Uh, but even in the more in the more recent versions, we haven't had anything quite like uh, like it's only that 1971 cartoon I think that gives us that Ghost of Christmas Past. Yeah, I, w I will say that one thing I did like about the cartoon is you know obviously the 1951 film is limited in what it can do visually. I mean it could. It could present some of the monstrous stuff, but I mean, Marley, for example, in the cartoon, uh, he, he does this at one point where his like mouth like drops yes. like a mutant from Beetlejuice, right? It's yeah. just this really graphic kind of terrifying image, which I, which is ex, that's in the book exactly. That's another one. Yeah. yeah. And you don't get that in, in the movie. And I think that's just, uh, it's because of the well, limits. Couldn't. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it works really well because I, I feel like, you know, I didn't like the cartoon as much, I think just because it's so damn short. Um, but you have to admit that, that if we're going for visual terror, 
the uh the nineteen seventy one film does some things that are much more horror based and much more graphic. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, well, yeah, just again because because it, it can, uh, and it's it's Ghost of Christmas yet to come. I remember being finding particularly striking. I mean, the it's 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 figure as death, well, I think was really really clear. Uh, yeah. in the uh, in that. Ooh. I mean, I though I remember uh, my how thrilled I was when I saw the live action one for the first time, and the Ghost of Christmas yet to come was surprise surprise my favorite character. In the, uh, <laughs> of course, it was, uh, and seeing him. Seeing it live action for the first time was a big, big thrill. Well, and uh, as simple as it is, just a guy in a black sheet, uh, and occasionally you can see through the cloak. Uh, it's it's a very striking uh, presence in the film. Yeah, and and, and uh, so I think we should probably end, we'll end on this last little bit, and then you know, we should probably say happy holidays to people and and leave this episode behind. But uh, I did I did want to say that 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 particular moment, the direction for when we see it in the 1951 film is really interesting because he's sort of stumbling down this street and then he stops and then we see a hand with a little bit of that black cloak. But we don't see what it is that Scrooge is terrified of because he's utterly terrified. He's about to wet his pants. He's that scared. Right. And he's he's basically begging with the spirit, like, just leave me alone. Like, it's almost half hearted. Because at this point he's he's really started to change, uh, but he's still doing that half-hearted like leave me alone. Let, I'm I'm too old. Just let me die in my sad, pathetic state. But it's it's unconvincing because he's so scared of what he now sees. Because I think he has a sense of what's to come. Uh, and I love that we don't see the figure until right before he he pulls him into seeing the future. Right. Yeah. And I I think that's a brilliant way of shooting that to never show us what's terrifying until until he's he's had to accept that he must take on what the spirit will show him. And it's clearly going to be bad. Yeah. Uh, and certainly there, uh, Dickens gives full reign to his darkness, and and the film returns to that horror uh, from the, the the first bit too. I I do think that there the uh, the film does have a in the scene you just described, there's, I, I, I agree completely in uh, that the way it's shot is is it works brilliantly. Um, I think there's a little bit of a misstep to have Scrooge still uh, saying, uh, "I'm too old, I cannot change." Right? And you're right that it's half-hearted, but I think it would have been um, truer to how we've been seeing him change uh, to have the the dialogue from the book, which is, um, "I'm, you know, I'm." There's a lesson that uh, that is working on me. I am changing um uh, won't you speak to me uh and and then you know conduct me where you will uh the you know we everything that we've seen up until that point uh the his saying that he's too old to change we can see that that's false and i agree with you that it it is pretty probably pretty half-hearted at that point uh but maybe we didn't need that particular that repetition of a line at that I, moment i i guess i disagree because of how I perceived it being acted as like, cause I, I feel like so much of what's in this film is cycles. It's cycles of things happening that you oh, can't see. see occurring. Yeah. Right. And not recognizing that, that his responses are just perpetuating cycles of the same kind of thing, right? Perpetuating anger, perpetuating the, the pain and the suffering. He doesn't realize how he's even party to that, how he's, he's, hurting himself by being unwilling to sort of open up to the world right uh, and so i see in that moment is it's another repetition but it's a repetition that is meaningless 
because it's one where he's sort of like in his real life, he's in many respects going through the motions and he's just saying it because he has to, because that's, that's the cycle. He doesn't know how to break it. He doesn't know yet how to give up. He, but he wants to, he wants to give in. He, he sees the message. He knows it's there, but he can't help himself. And so it's why it's, it's half-hearted. It's this sort of like, I'm too old, but he doesn't believe it, right? He's saying right. it as just like it's autopilot. That's how I kind of view it. And, and maybe that's that why it sense. works for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I can, I can go with that. Cool. Awesome. I made you agree with me on something. Yay. <laughs> uh, so on that note, we, we do have to kind of wrap up because we've been talking, we were talking about Star Wars before, which will be a special bit on this. And now we talked about this movie for quite a bit and had a pretty good discussion. So. Yeah. Yay, thank you for picking this movie, sir. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I did. Uh, so for folks that are listening, uh, you will not hear anything else from us till January because it's the, it's the end of the year and we got like lives and family and stuff to do. So, you know, that kind of thing. Also, supposedly we have grading, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so uh, I did want to say a very happy holidays, uh, whatever you may celebrate during this time. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Appreciate that, too. And uh, to David, because you weren't here for the the last Giffy and Fanti episode we recorded, uh, I hope you have a really great holiday. You enjoy your Christmas, because I know you'll be celebrating that, that you have lots of delicious food, that uh, your present is something terrifying, because that'll bring you joy. <laughs> and uh i wish all the same to you sean minus the terror uh and uh and all the best to our listeners as well over the holiday season excellent so thanks for listening guys and we'll see you when we come back bye, bye. So I'm going to be seeing uh, Star Wars the day after you guys do the uh, the podcast. Well, that's how I know you don't love us. <laughs> well, I'd like to have been there, but we just uh, uh, the 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 seats actually for the Tuesday matinee were better than the ones for the Monday morning. Oh, well. Oddly, the good news is I'm seeing the movie in a town that at this point in time has is devoid of undergrads because school is out and they've all gone home. <laughs> Ah. So I was able to get tickets opening day easy without even trying. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm probably going to have to just stay off the internet uh, between now and Tuesday more, Tuesday uh, afternoon. Well, you should have been off the internet this week because people in France already Oh, yeah, because it's already opened in England. Yeah. yeah. So I know people, and I'm like, yeah, if you tell me anything about the movie, I will cut you. I will fly <laughs> over there, and I will cut your legs off. <laughs> Fucking ruin the movie for me. I've been avoiding all <laughs> spoilers, and when I tried to explain to my friend, he wanted to, to show me one of the newer trailers that has more stuff in it. Yeah. Like, I think he wanted to show me the Japanese trailer, and I told him, yeah. no, don't even put it on. I will walk out of this room. And he's like, I understand why yeah. you're being so so ridiculous about this. And I explained to him, the reason is really simple. I already have a lot of bias going into this movie, both because I grew up on Star Wars. I used to watch it, right, when I had asthma attacks. That's what I would watch when I was home from school feeling like crap. I would watch Star Wars. So it's all emotional for me. Like I, this is this is my childhood. I hate J.J. Abrams with a fiery passion. Uh, so like combine those two things, 
I'm already loaded with so many expectations that are unreasonable. And I cannot be in a situation where those expectations could potentially get loaded up with more, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to go in as blind as possible as, as uh, knowing I can't be fully objective, but so like limiting all of the, the potential things that could bias me against or for the movie. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's like me with a, with a Godzilla movie. You know, I just, I don't want to know. I just want to, uh, want to hit it cold. Right. Um, I mean, for this, I mean, I, I know it, well, I mean, the, the, the it, it helps that Lucas set the bar so low for the, with the last three that you know it's going to be better. It's, you know it will be. Uh, there's no way it can't be. Um, you hope. And, <laughs> oh, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, the thing is, Abrams is also simply, um, you know, just at a, at a technical level, uh, in terms of sort of script and pacing and everything else, is a much better director than George Lucas ever was. Uh, so, okay. it, yeah. I mean, the, the chance, I think the chances are, I mean, though, um, it, it, though it can't have the impact that the first one did, uh, the chances are not unreasonable that this will be, uh, you know, in terms of scripting and characterization and so on and so forth, the best Star Wars film ever made. Well, okay. Calm your jets. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, all proportions maintained, right? Um, because, I mean, the first, I mean, I mean, I remember, um, I mean, I saw the first movie in the theaters as a kid. Um, I was 10 years old when that came out. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, I, uh, now they're talking about spoilers. I mean, they, they serialized the novelization in the newspaper. And I'd read that a million times before I actually saw the film. Um, so I knew everything that was going to happen. Um, but, but that, that was fine. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoyed it and I certainly lived imaginatively in the, um, in the Star Wars universe for like, you know, years after that. And, um, you know, I had the land speeder and my Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, uh, action figures and all, all that stuff. Um, but, uh, actually I talked about this with Paul, uh, some time back. I didn't particularly feel the need to see the movie again. Um, because even then, it was kind of like what mattered was the universe that it opened up. Uh, but it wasn't a film that I felt I needed to see over and over again. A couple of years later, a few years later, Alien came out and that was the one I needed to see again and again. I needed to relive the movie again and again. But there was, I mean, I remember as a kid even thinking, yeah, this, this was really, really fun. It's not that great a film, but it's really, really, you know, I love this, this universe. Um, and I think, so like Lucas, he made, he's, he made an important movie and he made a good movie. But those are two different movies. THX one thirty eight is his good movie. Star Wars is his important. Yeah, eleven thirty eight I think is is wonderful. I mean, I remember seeing an interview with him. Uh, and by the way, we're going to keep this for the podcast. I'm just going to make it an extra because this is wonderful. <laughs> uh, okay. I remember in a recent interview, and he said this before, but in a recent interview, you know, he sold off all his properties and he, you know, he basically let Star Wars go. Finally, fucking a, finally let it go. Um, and he said, you know, what he wanted to focus on was he wanted to do more experimental films because that's originally what he wanted to do anyway, right? He wanted to do science fiction, but he wanted to do his brand of science fiction, essentially. Hence, THX 1138, which is a very interesting film, flawed, but I think is rather compelling. And maybe one day we will do it for this show. Um, and when I, I saw him say that, I was like, yes, because I feel like even with Star Wars, I think that he was 
doing experimentation. He just wasn't doing it in terms of narrative. He was doing experimentation with the technology and trying to tell narratives in a way that had not been done before. And the problem is that that is no longer relevant in an age when you can take $100 million and you can make, you know, any CGI-infested space opera movie, right? I mean, to me, honestly, it would be impressive if they ever went back and said, we're only going to do a space opera with just practical effects and no CG whatsoever. That would be impressive to me, but you can't do that anymore. This era, that doesn't, that experimentation doesn't exist because the technology, I mean, we're not, we are advancing in tech, but it's all based on the same structure. Whereas Lucas was taking what was, you know, like if you watch some old Flash Gordon, like, like it's fucking spaceships on strings and iguanas with spikes put on them, right? Like it's, it's clever, but it's cheap. Uh, what he was yeah, doing well, was were not expensive. cheap. It was something, it was something incredible. Um, but to, I would love to see Lucas go back to making those small time experimental science fiction films, even if he doesn't make a lot of money doing it. I would love to see him just go do some crazy shit like THX 1138. That would be fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he could do that anymore. I think for the one, the one thing he got swallowed up by, um, the, you know, his, so whining and believing in the importance of his own mythology, um, or, uh, and forgetting that the films were supposed to be fun. I mean, the, the, the model for Star Wars was, like you said, the Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon serials, right? It even, it, it takes, it imports the crawl, uh, from them, the, the pretense at an episodic structure, the, uh, and the same kind of thing that, um, uh, that he and Spielberg returned to with Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Th- those are films looking back to older models, and they're and they're typical of the the movie brats of the seventies, right? Doing new versions of old films, right? Like you doing know, better Francis versions Coppola of old redo- films. <laughs> well, in, depending, right? Um, and, yeah, okay. Well, in, in, there's a special case in the serial, but I mean, the, uh, and in in the case of uh, of Coppola, okay, he goes back to the gangster movie for The Godfather, right? Yeah. Um, but um. But and and in Star Wars and in Jaws, you had also this kind of you know suddenly doing a B movie plot with gigantic budgets. Uh, and Roger Corman talks about going to see Jaws and going, "Oh man, we're in trouble," because uh, now the major studios are doing what we uh, you know independents have been doing, uh, but we can't compete with these special effects with this production value. So we're going to have to do something else, right? And Star Wars confirmed that. Uh, and so in some ways, yeah, they were, they, they were, um, groundbreaking. There, there's a groundbreaking aspect of the time. I mean, the, those films emerged from the American film Renaissance. Ironically, they wound up uh, unintentionally destroying the very, uh, art, um, uh, circumstances that led them to come into being. Cause all of a sudden the studios knew how to make money really fast again, thanks to those two films. So, so and the blockbuster era was born. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and Lucas's interest has re- certainly been consistently in, in technique and that, and has certainly continued to be so. But, uh, as a, he, he has, seems to have, he doesn't seem to have ever really been interested in people. Uh, and, uh, I mean, so you have, you know, you know, uh, Harrison Ford notoriously telling him on the set of Star Wars, George, you may be able to write this shit, but you can't speak it. Uh, you know, he has a tin ear for dialogue. And, uh, and 
the yeah perhaps yeah. because THX 138 has relatively little dialogue. It's not it um and or perhaps just something to the way it's constructed. It's not as um as as noticeable. Well, and I think part uh, of that dialogue issue for Lucas is you know in the in the seventies he can get away with some of the the weak dialogue. Even in the eighties he can get away with some. I mean, there's some great lines that oh, come in the eighties. No, 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 no. I, I disagree entirely. That has something to do with the era. You look at the qual and some of the writing from decades and decades and decades. Just you know, bad writing is bad writing. Doesn't matter what decade it is. Uh, I disagree. It, I think that what, when he tries to transplant what he did in the seventies and early eighties to the late nineties and the early two thousands, it becomes very clear that it is a model that does not translate up in the generation. Uh, I think he gets away with it in the original Star Wars because it's so much filled up with these archetypes and mythology. Uh, and mythology we don't know anything about. The problem is, is we now know the mythology. And when you take these, these, these formats that he's doing and translating them to these late 1990s world and trying to do the same kind of thing, it doesn't work the same way. And part of that is because, well, A, the dialogue even, I think, honestly gets worse. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to George Lucas if he had a stroke. But some of the stuff he writes in Attack of the Clones, for example, I mean, like, I, I've said this before, but I'm not sure George Lucas has ever been in a romantic relationship. <laughs> because yeah. the, the dialogue he gives in Attack of the Clones is possibly some of the worst dialogue we've seen in a movie that's intended to give us a romance. Because it's not a romance. It's almost like if, if honestly, if you'd imagine this movie and you'd, you'd got to the end, if, if the end of Attack of the Clones was uh, Anakin force choking, his his future wife, we would no longer see this relationship as one of, of romance and then the fall into darkness. We would see it as an abusive relationship because that's what it's coded as. And yet we're supposed to feel that this is romantic, that like he's wooing her and that he's telling her how much he, he feels for her by explaining how much pain he, she brings him. There's nothing romantic about that. Um, but I think in the, the original ones, the romance is much more subdued. I mean, Han Solo is kind of creeping on Leia, right? He, a little bit, but there's something kind of swashbuckly. There's a little bit of that, that, that kind of scruffy charm, which is absent in the newer ones. Uh, it doesn't work in the same way, in part because I don't think Lucas also knows how to edit his own movies, uh, in a way that, that the, the originals, while flawed, uh, I think are much tighter than the the new ones that may also have to do with the fact that uh Lucas did not direct all of the old ones. <laughs> well, yeah, he only did one. Yeah. Uh well, and though yeah, I mean I, whereas I would agree that there's certain conventions or, or re representations that you could get away with in the same that you can no longer now. I would disagree that there's a like a question of sophistication on the part on on the question of writing or that audiences are now somewhat more sophisticated than they were 50 years 40 years ago. Um but uh but i certainly agree though that the there's you know in in terms of you know show, having certain relationships and things like that on the screen that might have that might have gotten by then wouldn't now um and yeah and i think yeah the the dialogue well i think one of the things that saved him in the past is also if you consider some of who he had in his cast right um uh, if you look at the the actors who come away uh intact in his films it's either, uh, you know, you, you get somebody like, uh, Alec Guinness, so one of the greatest actors ever, who can therefore deal with whatever crap you're giving him to say, 
Or you look at it's people like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee who have who know their way around a bad line, right? Uh, who have uh, done their uh, their their time uh, in the trenches in um, in B movies and you know so some great, some less great. Um, they know how to deal with uh, with pulp, uh, and so they can they they can deliver that. But uh, whereas uh, you know, actors who aren't who aren't up to that. Right, uh, are just are left floundering, uh, which is um, why uh, I mean, I mean, Luke Skywalker is a pretty um, uninteresting protagonist, right? <laughs> I mean, really, who cares? Uh, he's uh, there's a reason why Darth Vader is the iconic uh, uh, character to come out of there, and and also I suppose to a degree Han Solo. Right, because also uh, Harrison Ford, uh, a, a much stronger performer there too. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would agree uh, to a sort of degree. I, I still think Luke Skywalker is a fascinating character, but I don't think it's because of Luke himself so much as the conflicts he has with other characters. So his relationship with Darth Vader. Uh, what's interesting about that isn't that Luke is in the relationship, but rather that Darth Vader is his father, right? So yeah. it's sort of, I, I think of Luke as he is the archetypal hero, but he is also sort of this thing that sits in the middle around which everything else kind of bounces off, right? His relationship with other people bouncing off of, you know, it's Han Solo, right? Han Solo only gets involved in the rebellion because Luke happens to show up and hire him. Right. And then, of course, in relationship with Leia and so on and so forth. Right. Like these things. Luke, Luke is magnetic as a character only in the sense that he is present. Um, I still like his character. I think he's interesting. I think Hamill does a decent enough job in the films, given with what he was working with. Uh, but I, I would agree that that he is not the iconic character in the same sense as the others. I mean, obviously, Han Solo is the big one. Um, I mean, for Christ's sake, even Boba Fett is more iconic than Luke. And Boba Fett has what, like five lines in in Empire. So yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the uh, Luke is. Let's say that then he's he's a catalyst, right? But there, there's kind of an absence there. But yeah, he's a catalyst. You're, you're, I agree. Yeah, he show his presence makes other things happen. But it could be, you know, you could have a plank of wood that has been given this totemic significance, um, and 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 we get that would get the same result. Yeah, yeah. And and just kind of going back to Alec Guinness. I I mean, most Star Wars fans know this, but he uh he's kind of notorious for kind of hating star wars uh i mean he he didn't really have he came back for all of the films obviously well the originals anyway uh but he he basically kind of trashed the film he did not think it was very good uh, i mean even in some of the the letters he wrote while making the film he trashed the film uh he did have kind things to say about han solo or excuse me uh, harrison ford uh but for the most part he he didn't think George Lucas is much of a director. And it does make me curious. I can't remember the, the story, but how the hell did George Lucas convince him to be in the movie, given that he had no real love for the material? I mean, this is Sir Alec Guinness, for Christ's sake. Uh, I think he, uh, I think uh, both he and Cushing were getting um, uh, a cut of the, uh, uh, of either the net or the gross. So, you know, Cushing, so that, I mean, it was, uh, it wound up being a lot of money. Well, that makes, that makes sense then, if that's, that was the motivation. 
I do kind I of believe I, I wouldn't swear to that. I'd, I'd, I'd have to uh, double check that myself. I do feel really sad though because I I love Grand Moff Tarkin as a character. He he's very interesting as this leader who uh, is arrogant, thinks that because he's got a, this space station that can destroy planets, he's invincible. Uh, I do feel sad that he dies because that is a story that I like. There's just so much you could tell with this character. Um, but it's very interesting to me that after that film, what ends up happening after that is there's a sequence of of members of the Empire who rise up in the ranks who don't actually want to rise up in the ranks because when they fail, <laughs> Darth Vader <laughs> kills them. <laughs> or it, it gives this impression that there's something about Grand Moff Tarkin, right? Like he, he isn't successful at all points. He does fail in the original movie to a slight degree. Uh, but there's something about his character that I think he's he's the last real leader <laughs> before before we get to the other films, and it's sort of Darth Vader just like desperately trying to find a competent commander, but of course yeah. he has unrealistic expectations, and so he's constantly force joking people. <laughs> to be fair, at least he's getting practice with his force powers, which he's gonna need. So hard to get good help. It is so hard to get good help, especially when you kill them. Yeah. Well. Uh, I suppose, so I guess we should turn to. <laughs> I suppose we should do uh, the the actual film that we came to do. So uh, we're going to stop here. Okay. <laughs>